0: This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show.
1: You know, people always try, I can't wait to get to the top. Ah, who cares about being at the top? It's the journey. I'll never forget. Um, one day, Jimmy handed me an envelope, and I had no clue what it was. And I opened it up, and it was a check. It was a check for $25. And I said, what is this for? He says, well, I bought one of your jokes. And at the time, James, I was, I was a paper boy, and I was getting paid half a penny a paper for every paper I delivered. I had to throw two newspapers to make one penny. I had so to be like 5,000 papers to make to, 25 bucks. To make 25 bucks. So when he handed me this check for 25 bucks, I had never seen a check made out to me before. I cannot believe somebody paid me for a thought that I had in my head. And I called the next day after I got the cash and I quit my paper route. I I called my supervisor and said, like, I don't know how to break this to you, but uh, I'm very, very rich now. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I need to, uh, I need to uh, give up my route, and uh, you need to find somebody else. But anyway, I was really happy we quit. I, I, was, I let that job go and moved on to the next phase of my career and became a full-time comedian and comedy writer. How, how old were you then? I was probably 12 years old.
0: And I always wonder, do you think you could have achieved or caught up somehow if, you, if, if these things interested you later in life than
1: when you were 12? So sorry. Yeah, so sorry we're getting started late here, but hopefully you're not pressed for time. No, no, we're good. I say it's a, it's the first time in 10 years, two kids at home, really, really sick. So, uh, but I'm glad I made it. So well,
0: I hope they're better, and I hope you don't catch. No, I'm a, I don't catch anything. All right. <laughs> so. I don't, I don't, so go for it. Let's do it. Yeah, <laughs> I'm talking. I'm so excited. I'm talking to Byron Allen. You know, there's so many different ways I can introduce you, so I'm just going to go backwards in time. But uh, you recently bought the Weather Channel for $300 million. I'm, I can't believe I'm sitting here with the guy who owns the. I turn on the Weather Channel to see which storms are gonna hit me. So now that's all your fault. I'm gonna blame the
1: weather on you. Just text me, I'll tell you.
0: <laughs> I want the weather. If I want the weather to change, I'll text you. Yeah,
1: just text me. I can always make it 80 degrees and sunny. Just tell me where you're going, and we'll make sure it's 80 degrees and sunny for my new friend James.
0: Do you ever see that Larry Davis or the Curb Your Enthusiasm show where he thinks the weather guy is lying so he can have an empty golf course so the weather guy will say oh it's raining and then it'll be sunny and and the weather guy will be the only guy on the on the golf course
1: that's so funny i love that
0: um so so now i'm gonna go backwards in time byron allen was the you were probably the youngest comic ever on the johnny carson show you were a stand-up comedian starting from the age of 14 at the age of 18 you're on the johnny carson show i don't think anyone ever was younger than you performing stand-up on the show
1: yeah you know we're in my office right now and that's the jacket i wore right there behind you i, I wore that jacket on the tonight show i always say a, comedians have two birthdays the day they were born for me april 22nd 1961 and the day they did the tonight show with johnny carson that's great and that was may 17 1979 and then I, he, was, I was 18 years old
0: so so two things about that one is before you arrived we were we were sitting in the office I was thinking of taking the jacket out of the frame and wearing it and just greeting you as if nothing unusual was happening but i figured i didn't know what your temperament would be on that and the other thing is uh, i watched the 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 act great for at age 18 you were you were pulling it off like the audience was enjoying it you were you were making you know insightful comments about your parents and your dad and and johnny carson calls you over to the couch like did you expect that
1: Uh, I was hoping. Because by the way, that was a big deal. That was a big deal. And I was hoping, you know, look, I was, you know, Johnny was, you know, absolutely one of my my biggest heroes. You know, I absolutely love, love, love him. He uh, inspired me uh, to do what I'm doing. Uh, You know, I was uh, a kid from Detroit, Michigan, and born there in 61. And uh, in 68, uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated. And we we had uh, really bad riots in Detroit. I was seven years old and uh, the military came in and took over our neighborhood and we were under military siege and we were on lockdown i mean you know within minutes of, of them assassinating martin luther king i was looking down the barrel of the tank mm-hmm. um and troops were walking uh all over our neighborhood and on our lawns with bayonets and you know, the dogs and they were very clear don't move or get in your house, or we're going to kill you. Or we're going to shoot you on the spot. And definitely do not be on the streets after dark because that's just an automatic shoot and kill. So um, it was uh, extremely uh, tense. Uh, the summer of uh, '68, and uh, and uh, my mom said, "Let's go visit some some friends and family in uh, Los Angeles." So we ended up going to L.A. and uh, for what was supposed to be a two week vacation. And uh, we ended up staying, and that was 50 years ago, and uh, that really changed uh, things for me, and you know where I was headed, which was fine. Um, as a kid, I, I in Detroit in the 60s was was a magical time and a magical place. Uh, we were making the cars for the world, and we were making the music for the world, and we won the World Series with the Tigers. So it was just a magical place, and I couldn't wait to grow up and go work with my dad at Ford Motor Company because my dad worked at Ford Motor Company for 30-something years, or my granddaddy who worked at Great Lakes Steel for 30-something years. And these were guys who probably never called in a day sick. Uh, they, uh, they tried to make a, uh, a 24-hour day 36 hours, and they ate out of a brown paper bag and drank really bad co- coffee, but they didn't know it. That they made, um, and uh, you know, I I really saw that work ethic with them, uh, and, and it, it always stuck with me. And when my mom and I came out here to L.A., we really struggled quite a bit. You know, stayed uh, uh, on a lot of sofas and a lot of floors. And Did you uh, have family out here? Yeah, my my grandfather's sisters, and uh, it was. Uh, quite an interesting time. You know, my mother had me, she got pregnant with me when she was 16 and she had me 17 days after her 17th birthday. So on paper, uh, I didn't look like a very good bet. You know, a little black baby born to a 17 year old black teenage girl in 1961 in Detroit, Michigan, you probably wouldn't bet on that baby, uh, uh, too heavily. And, uh, you know, that's what, uh, you know, is one of the uh, one of the remarkable things about this country uh, is when you look at where someone starts with such humble beginnings and and how it could not go very well, uh, and and you know and uh, how it changes along the way if you work hard and have faith. Uh, I'm so, I'm sorry I don't know this, but where's your mom now? She's here. She's here. Uh, her office is right on the other side of this wall. Oh, you're kidding! So, yeah, but she's not here right now as we speak. Well, so, well, what does she do
0: for the company?
1: She's one of the executives here. She's an exec producer, and uh, she's great. she's one of the executives here. You know, my mother uh, uh, ended up getting a number of jobs. One of them, you know, I mean, she went to uh, the uh, she went to the Urban League, and the Urban League had like a uh, helped helped out and helped her get a job at the Salvation Army, and at the Salvation Army. Um, she was in, you know, she was one of the, uh, counselors that helped pass out goods and food and shelter and services so people wouldn't be homeless. So I used to go with her and watch her help the homeless and make sure people had food and shelter. And, uh, the irony is that both the, uh, the Salvation Army and the Urban League have recently honored me and they never knew that. And I shared that with them, that. You know, her first job here was with, you know, the Urban League, and they helped get the job at the Salvation Army. But she went on to get into UCLA, and she got a ended up getting her master's degree in cinema TV production. And because she was at UCLA and she was working on her master's degree, um, she went out to the entertainment industry to get jobs. And she went to NBC and asked for a job, and they said no. And she said, uh, she asked, do you have an intern program? And they said, no. And she asked a question, one of the most important questions that probably changed. um, Well, it did change our life forever. She asked the question, will you start one with me? And they said, yes. And so she got a job as an intern working for free at NBC. And because of that, she was able to get a job as a tour guide and she then started getting giving tours of NBC. And <clears throat> you know'm I'm a, I'm a young kid at this point, and so uh, there's you know, there's no such thing as child care or nannies. That's not something I discovered until my wife and I had three kids. Um, so I used to go to go to NBC with my mother after school and during the summer. Um, and I discovered a whole nother world, uh, very different from the world that I was exposed to. Uh, with my dad working at Ford and my granddaddy working at Great Lake Steel, which is an amazing world. And I couldn't wait to put on a uniform and go make cars for the world or steel for the world. Uh, it was a different kind of factory. This NBC that I had discovered was a content factory. And I was a kid in, in a wonderland. I, uh, I literally just hung out in the studios all day. And I would watch Johnny Carson do The Tonight Show. And then I walk across the hall and Watch Sanford, watch Red Fox do Sanford and Son, and then I would go down the hall and watch Flip Wilson do his variety show, and then I go and watch Bob Hope do his specials, and I would watch Freddie Prince do Cheek on the Man. And I would just go from studio to studio. I was watching them do Days of Our Lives, and I watch. I go to the local little news studio and I watch an unknown sportscaster uh, do the sports. Brian Gumble before he got the Today Show, and I watch the weatherman, unknown weatherman, do the weather before he got, you know, Pat Sajak, before he got Will of Fortune. I'm just watching, and I'm watching the camera crew work with the director, work with the lighting director, work with the, the grips, the, the writers, the producers, work with the executives and the negotiations. And I'm just a kid, and I'm wallpaper, and I'm just standing, and I'm watching the process, and I'm watching them make talk shows, and sitcoms, and game shows, and soap operas, and twenty-four hour, and, and newscasts, and I'm watching 24-hour news operations. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. What a wonderful way to go through life, entertaining people, informing people, and making people laugh. And I had an epiphany. And I remember the hair just went up on my arms. And I said, this is what I'm going to spend the rest of my life doing. And I don't care if I ever get paid one penny. Mm-hmm. I will do it for free and i will sleep outside and i will eat grass but i will do this for with my life this is what i told i was probably 12 years old
0: you know it, it's it's interesting how many people who are the the peak of their profession got their first sense of immersion in that profession as a kid so you look at like i don't know so many different industries but you know, Richard Branson, obviously, with music as a kid. Uh, I, I'm even. I'm thinking back to various podcast podcast guests we've had, like Gary Kasparov in ch- chess as a kid, Tony Hawk in this area was skateboarding as a kid. Um, and I always wonder, do you think you could have achieved or caught up somehow if you if if these things interested you later in life than when you were 12?
1: Sure. At I, I, I,
0: 12, though, you built your neurons are just wiring, so you you became. C- entertainment at the age of 12 like your brain was wired for
1: it yeah i mean you, you know i i loved you know just seeing how it worked i love the you know the business you know for me it was immediately not show business business show because i was able to see that happen you know I, you know i was able to i was walking down the hall and this young guy walks up to me and he's got this wonderful smile and he's just warm and he's engaging he's just a lovely person it's brandon Tartikoff. and he's the youngest he's the youngest network head in the history he's just as wonderful as he can be and i was uh, i was probably 18 years old and i was like hey you know nice to meet you and you just moved out and, and i said you know i have some ideas i'd like to share with you and he said you know uh, i'm kind of booked you know with the office and i thought oh, you know i understand and he says uh, but why don't you come over to my house okay I've got to tell you something, all my years on this planet, no executive has ever, ever, ever invited me to their home. And this guy invited me to his home. I sat there Saturday afternoon. We talked about our passion for television and uh, I'll never forget, he said, you know, my wife and I just had our first baby and she's sleeping, my wife's sleeping and the baby's sleeping. You want to peek in and take a look at the baby? I said, sure, and we peeked in. He goes, be careful, don't wake up the baby because my wife, Lily, will be very upset with me. I said, no, no, we'll be quiet. We peeked in and took a look. I mean, to have that experience as a kid is an experience that is unimaginable.
0: Right, because then, I mean, I imagine you probably pitched him some ideas. I don't know if he said yes or no, but he was considered...
1: The the I mean he one of the greatest Seinfeld, TV executives like, yes. for
0: TV like he's one of the greatest TV executives ever. Yeah, he's
1: one of the greatest TV executives ever, hard to beat. And so for me to have that experience as a kid, uh, and my mother went on to become a publicist and you know doing publicity in the marketing department at NBC, and she covered a lot of these shows. Little House on the Prairie was one of her shows, and and uh, um, uh, she covered. Uh, chico and the man and some of the others and so for me it was great
0: and and i'm sorry to interrupt again i'm so glad you mentioned chico and the man because i feel like there were the early 70s and then i feel there was another golden age maybe in the late 00s when you had you know Mad Men, breaking bad and and kind of these gritty dramas like that but chico and the man was so gritty for its time and so beautiful from the theme song all the way to the end i mean unfortunately cut short when freddie prince died but yeah. you know that show the norman lear shows welcome back cotter like these shows were like great fantastic
1: real urban types of shows changing television you know i was it was uh, another golden age of tv you know i'm uh i'm going i'm hanging out at the studio with my mom and going to all these you know studios and watching some of the best talent to ever work in television i'm standing there and i'm watching jimmy comac do cheek on the man and i'm watching johnny carson i'm watching flip wilson and i'm watching them write and edit and rehearse and trying to figure out how to richard pryor is on the flip wilson show and they're doing a sketch and then one day one summer gladys knight summer of 75 gladys knight had a summer show gladys knight and the pips summer show and she had a comedian on and i he performed and i knocked on the door and i said Sir, so that was very funny, and I, I want to be a comedian like you. Uh, what exactly should I do? How do I become a comedian like you? And he says, well, first of all, thank you. And he says, uh, you should go to the comedy store. And I said, the comedy store? He says, yeah, go there and perform. And I said, thank you. And I said, I'm going to be sure and watch your sitcom that you, you, you said you were going to have starting this fall. I go, what's the name of it again? And he said, welcome back, Cotter. <laughs> Wait, who was the comedian? It was Gabe Kaplan. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And it was Gabe, and he was a young comic, and he was doing the Tonight. He was doing a Gladys Knight's show. So I called the comedy store, and uh, I said, Hi, this is the comedy store, and it's a comedy store. I said, Okay. I said, So what do you sell sight gags for? And, and, and pratfalls and, and, and punchlines. How much do they go? Do you charge by the pound? And he said, What are you talking about? <laughs> this is the comedy store. It's not like a supermarket, you knucklehead, where you come and buy routines. This is, that's like, he goes, it's a club. It's where you come and you perform. And I went, oh, okay. It's a club, but you call it the comedy store. You might want to change the name, but I get it now. <laughs> and so he goes, okay. I said, so how does it work? He goes, we have Monday night tryout nights and you just come here and you you go on stage and we see if we think you're funny and then if you're funny we'll bring you back but come here on a monday night i go okay well what time should i get there he goes we should get as early get here as early as you can because people start lining up pretty early so i said no problem so the next monday i go there and i get there nine in the morning and i'm sitting there on the curb at nine in the morning. I'm the only one there. <laughs> and it's not opening till like what? Five? It's not seven <laughs> o'clock. Then they open at seven o'clock. And I'm sitting there on the curb at nine in the morning and just watching cars go by and trying to figure out what am I going to say tonight? So I'm sitting there and and then about two o'clock, a guy shows up and he sits next to me and he's waiting too. And it turned out to be Jamie Masada who, owned the, who started the Laugh Factory mm-hmm. years later. Mm-hmm. So it's all these comics who just show up and we're just kind of sitting there. And then finally the door was open and the door opens and uh, there's this woman sitting at the front door and her name is Mitzi Shore and she's the owner of the Comedy Store. She had gotten it out of a divorce from Sammy Shore, uh, Polly Shore's dad and Sammy was a comedian, is a comedian and he, he made some good money going on tour as Elvis Presley's opening act. And she was the receptionist uh at the agency that represented uh Sammy Shore. Hmm. So he goes to see his agent, and he's you know, meets this beautiful young lady and it's Mitzi and sweeps her off her sweet uh her feet and marries her and has four kids, Polly being one of them. They get it, and unfortunately get a divorce and she gets the comedy store. And she takes it to a level that no one could take it to. And Just, and and by the way,
0: kind of uh the the inspiration for I'm dying up here on
1: Showtime, the show on Showtime. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, you got it. So I go, and she's sitting there at the front door, and and she sees me. And she's like, how old are you? And I said, I'm 14 years old, ma'am. She goes, you can't be in here. I'm going to lose my liquor license. (laughs) So I said, well, I certainly don't want you to do that, ma'am. And she goes, I tell you what, you just stay outside in the back, out there in the back. Don't let anybody see you. You just stay in the back. And when it's time for, I can put you on, I'll have somebody come get you and you run to the stage. You do, you do your routine and then you leave. Do not hang out. I go, okay, no problem, man. I'll, I'll go and I'll just do my routine and I'll leave. And she goes, here, here's some drink tickets. Cause she paid us with drink tickets. He goes, here's two drink tickets. Do not get any alcohol with this. You just go get soda pop. And I said, no problem, ma'am. I'll just drink soda pop. So, <laughs> so I would stand in the back of the comedy store And the comics would get upset with me. They don't lean on my car. Get off my car. So I would just basically stand around from like nine in the morning until eight o'clock at night. I just stand straight up. I couldn't lean on anyone's car. And uh, finally, they come. Some guy comes in and goes, "Mitzi's ready for you to go on stage and run in there and do it and come on out." And so I go, "Okay, no problem." And then they say, "Byron Allen." I ran to the stage and do my five minutes, and then I ran out and. you know, I was like, wow, I don't know what just happened, but, man, I'm, I'm glad she didn't lose her liquor license and uh, her liquor license. And so I come off stage, and this guy comes up to me, and he goes, hey. He says, uh, he goes, that was funny. I go, okay, thank you. That was the, uh, that was the intent. He goes, uh, who wrote that? I go, I did. He goes, okay. He goes, that's really good. He goes, my name is Wayne Klein. I go, nice to meet you, Wayne Klein. He goes, I'm a a comedian and a writer. And he goes, I may know somebody who wants to write with you. Are you open to writing with other people? I go, sure. He goes, can I get your phone number? I go, all right, here's my number. So uh, I said, nice meeting you, Wayne Klein. He goes, nice meeting you, Byron Allen, right? We kind of go our separate ways. Next thing you know, I get a phone call. The phone rings. And this guy goes, can I speak to Byron? I go, speaking. He goes... My man, Wayne Klein, says you're funny. And if my man, Wayne Klein, says you're funny, then you're funny. I go, okay. I remember Wayne. Tell Wayne I said hello. I go, who's this? He goes, this is Jimmy and J.J. Walker. I go, hey, how you doing? This guy's the hottest comedian ever on the planet he's probably
0: the first comedian cast in a sitcom right good yes. times i don't think this maybe red fox was around the yeah, cast also that's a good point
1: i'm trying to think yeah i'm sure that well i mean in a sitcom yeah you yeah you got me thinking you know because bob hope and milton burrow they did have variety shows but i'm sure there was some comedian doing sitcoms right but he's hotter than hot it's the 70s good times is just like he's amazing right mm-hmm. superstar jimmy walker like i cannot believe him honored he calls me he goes, yeah, so my man Wayne and me and my guys who write every Tuesday and Thursday at my place wanted to see if you wanted to come and write with us because my man Wayne Klein says you're funny. <laughs> so I said, yeah, yeah. He goes, he goes, you want to come over and write with us? I go, yeah, 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 yeah. Let me let me go ask my mom. He goes, and I heard him go, he has to ask his mom. <laughs> and so this dude in the back was like in the, at Jimmy's apartment because he had just called me at the end of a writer's meeting. He said, he's got to ask his mom, what is this all about? And one of the writers was like, hey, tell his mom not to worry. We'll have cookies and milk for him. And I'm like, oh, my God, who's that smart Alec?" But anyway, I asked my mom. My mom says, yeah, I can go. She takes me over there. And uh, he lives on Sunset. At that point, he lived on Sunset by that that little hamburger restaurant that's a train. It's a train cart, right, on Sunset. It's like a a caboose, Hmm. right? Because he was two blocks away from the comedy store on Sunset. And I thought, oh, my God, this is like the greatest bachelor pad ever. When I grow up, I want to be this guy. He's got this great bachelor pad on Sunset. So I go into his apartment on Tuesday night at 730. And sitting in Jimmy Walker's apartment is Wayne Klein, Marty Nadler, who went on to write and produce Laverne and Shirley and Happy huh. Days, Jay Leno, who was sleeping in his car off the 405 freeway. David Letterman, who had just come out from India, driven out from Indianapolis in a red pickup truck or an orange pickup truck, I don't know. And uh, because he he wasn't sure he was going to be able to make it. So he wanted to be able to get back in his pickup truck and drive back to Indianapolis.
0: You know, until I was researching you, I didn't know that Jay Leno and and Letterman... Wrote for Jimmy
1: Walker that that surprised me. Oh my God, it, it, it's you know, and the the guys in this living room every Tuesday and Thursday it was Comedy University. It, it was it was it was Jeff Stein and Wayne Dugan uh, who went on to do Mr. Belvedere, uh, and we just sat in in his living room around the coffee table, and and what would
0: that process be like? We
1: would present our comedy material. We would say, "Here are the jokes that I wrote," and we would read them out and. The guys would say, that sucks. That's not funny. What were you thinking? You, you, if you don't drink, you need to start drinking. Come on. You know, I mean? it's not an easy room. <laughs> you know, I mean, you're talking about some of the best comedy minds on the planet. And, you know, I'm like 14 years old. These guys are in their 20s. And uh, we're writing jokes. You know, and bring that to me, Eric, if you would. We're writing jokes. I mean, you guys, oh, it's good. You have your camera. So this is a photo of me, 14 years old, sitting in Jimmy Walker's apartment. The guy with the short white pants, that's David Letterman, right? You see it? That's Marty uh-huh. Nadler. We're sitting in his apartment. Jimmy Walker's next to me, right? And we're just sitting there and we would just sit there for hours and hours at a time. Well,
0: and, what'd you, What would you learn from these guys? Like you must have, this must have been, like you said, comedy university. Like what were some of the things you learned? The
1: art of writing comedy it's a craft. It's a unique craft. And I learned so much. Leno and Letterman, just Marty, just move this word, change this word. Okay. That's a good idea. That's a good idea, but that's a bad joke. How do we take that idea? Okay. Let's expand it. Move it over here. You know, change this just you know, Move this over there.
0: Can you remember like a specific example, like a specific kind of joke that they tweaked and made work better?
1: Oh my goodness, you're going way back. You know what's so funny? I think I thought we used to, we had notebooks, reams of notebooks. I have reams of notebooks of like jokes that Letterman wrote and submitted. And it was just so unique. And it was like, and Marty was, I, we called him, I think, Dr. Nadler because Marty was always the, he fixed it. You know, and, and he always could, like, okay, you know what? I was ni- I was 70, 80% there and you got me there You because he tweaked it. He always tried to find the best of it. I'm trying to think of ideas. It was just, and just, you have an idea there, and I just loved it. They just showed you how, get to that punchline as fast as possible. Hmm. Words, that's the enemy to the joke. The longer you take to get to that punchline, the funnier that punchline has to be. And what's... You you have to use word economy. You have to find words. You have to create that picture, and you have to make sure you're using the perfect words in the perfect way, the perfect, you know, tone in your voice and the way you say it, so you sell that picture and get that laugh.
0: And and Jimmy Walker had a particular kind of delivery, obviously. So you're sort of writing for his delivery. His voice. But what would be, what would make a good premise, for
1: instance? He, but you know, Jimmy's an observational comic. So it was really about observation. What did you know, you know, you know, just whatever it was, you know, just did you notice this and why do people say this? I was reading the other day. So it was that. And uh it was just the one of the best experiences ever you know people always try i can't wait to get to the top ah who cares about being at the top it's the journey i mean you know one some of my greatest moments not buying the weather channel i mean that's a great moment you know that's history i'm the third owner of the weather channel right uh, but i wouldn't trade being in a room being in jimmy walker's living room with david letterman and jay leno and marty nadler and wayne klein and learning how to write comedy, which is one of the greatest gifts ever. That was just a remarkable time for a 14-year-old kid. And like
0: each of them probably had their own skill set. Like Jay Leno's sort of classic premise, punchline, Letterman is a little bit more... A little bit more snarkiness in his in his jokes was that was that and did by the you way, it was,
1: you know that smart Alec who said told Jimmy not to worry, we'll have cookies and milk for him That was David Letterman. that's funny because <laughs> I was really annoyed. I want to know who was that uh, <laughs> and, and and it was him. oh yeah, we got some cookies and milk for you. Oh my god, these guys were they were the best thing that happened to me, but let me tell you, it was a brutal period there, but I love them. Uh, you know, I just love them and and Jay was just every man. Right, he was just that. He just made it so easy and and every man like just very relatable. Uh, Jay would, was really good at editing our material and enhancing, and just really appreciated that time with them. I just had it was just one of the best times, and I'll never forget. Um, one day at, after the meeting, uh, Jimmy handed me an envelope, and I had no clue what it was. And I opened it up, and it was a check. It was a check for $25. And I said, what is this for? He says, well, I bought one of your jokes. Jay and Dave were getting $200 a week. Mm. They were on staff. That's what they got paid, $200 a week. I didn't make staff. I got $25 a joke. And... I I asked Jimmy I said can I get on staff? He goes, "No, no, no, no." He goes, "You don't need to be on staff. Those guys have, they, they, you know, they got to pay their bills and blah blah blah." He goes, "But you can make more than them. Just sell me 10 jokes a week." <laughs> I never sold him 10 jokes in a week, but I sure did try. <laughs> so, he was paying me 200. He was paying me 25 bucks a joke. And at the time, James, I was I was a paperboy, and I was throwing the Herald Examiner and I was getting paid half a penny a paper for every paper I delivered. I had to throw two newspapers to make one penny. Hmm. I had so to be like 5,000 papers to, to make 25 bucks. It was like 5,000, 50,000 papers or whatever yeah. it was to make 25 bucks.
0: Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. I have to say Airbnb has changed my life I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, And I've known people, I had a friend who basically you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an, it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side-by-side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But- it was four plane rides like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, at I, first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when... You know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long, and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ziprecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see, you'll you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it, and I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop. Really, I was even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job. I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast, and the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire.
1: So when he handed me this check for 25 bucks, I had never seen a check made out to me before. And I was like, what is, I went to my mother, I go, what is this? She goes, it's a check for 25 bucks. And I said, what's going to happen now? She said, you're going to take it to a bank, and you're going to cash it, and they're going to give you $25 cash. And I said, then what happens to the check? She says, they're going to send it back to Jimmy. I said, I don't want to cash it. I want to keep it. I cannot believe somebody paid me for a thought that I had in my head. She says, well, you can cash it, and then ask Jimmy to give you the check. I go, is that right? She goes, that's right. So I go, I open a bank account, at uh, Bank of America on La Brea and uh, Wilshire. And I walk in and I open an account and I say, I'm here to open an account and uh, I need to deposit $25. <laughs> so I open the account. They send the check to Jimmy. It was He was at Crocker Bank, I remember it. And uh, I have a copy of the check. I'll show it to you. And uh, I said, I'd like to get the check back if I could, please. And he said, okay? And like a month later, he gave me the check and I framed it and it's always with me. I have it somewhere right over here. Uh, and that was it. And I could not believe somebody gave me 20. And I called the next day after I got the cash and I quit my paper route. I, I called my supervisor and said, look, I don't know how to break this to you, but uh, I'm very, very rich now. <laughs> And I need to to, uh, give up my route, and uh, you need to find somebody else to deliver these papers. And it was the worst route. I had little ladies that were complaining. I didn't get it on the porch. I got it on the step. And And you had to collect, right? Oh, yeah. I had to collect. I had dogs chasing me. It was like, it was... It was not one of the, I, the highlights of my of my life.
0: <laughs> I, I was a paperboy as a kid but it was uh, it, it, it wasn't as hard to collect probably in my neighborhood as your neighborhood.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, I had to collect it was not easy and, and just I, the collection I didn't, didn't bother me as much as I cannot believe I got three calls to my supervisor because I had to I, I, they were very my they were like you have to get it on the porch, not the step. I yeah. mean I had there were people I had to get off my bike, put down my kickstand get the paper walk over to the porch put it on the porch and then get back on my bike and get away from their pit bull it was just not fun huh. but anyway i was really happy we quit i i was i let that job go and moved on to the next phase of my career and became a full-time comedian and comedy writer and i just kept doing stand-up and kept writing and and uh, the second so time
0: when you were doing stand-up like mitzi she liked what she saw were you doing the comedy? yeah store? i was doing
1: the comedy store mitzi was putting me on regularly and you're, you're
0: like in the in the show the uh, i'm dying up there the little kid who started uh i don't know if I, it was like the end of the
1: first season this little kid starts going doing up there because yeah. i was doing stand-up yeah i'm up there i'm going on regularly and uh and, and and i'm also performing at the improv now the first time i got a check to perform i go you know I'm i'm in high school and Bud Friedman comes up to me and he goes, what are you doing New Year's Eve? And I said, nothing. I'm, I'm like 16, 17 years old. What do you think I'm doing New Year's Eve? <laughs> Homework, right? He goes, okay, I'm going to put you on stage New Year's Eve. I go, wow, that's really cool. That's really big. It's a big deal. I'm going to do the improv New Year's Eve. So I perform New Year's Eve. And uh, next thing I know, like a month later, Bud Friedman walks up to me and hands me a check. I go, what is this for because we performed for free for the first four or five years of me doing stand-up i performed for free i never got paid a penny and i was in shock he goes well you perform new year's eve and i pay comedians for performing on new year's eve i go wow so i cashed the check <laughs> and then bud gave it back to me and those are the two checks i always keep with me the first check i got from jimmy walker for writing for 25 bucks and the first check i got from bud friedman uh, for performing for 25 bucks. And that's when I knew, you know what? I I can actually maybe pay my bills in this business. I I don't have to be, you know, I don't have to do it for free for my entire life.
0: You know, and there's that, there's that, uh, expression or not expression. There's this, uh, idea that it takes 10,000 hours to achieve mastery in something. And, uh, it's kind of like by the time you were 18, you had put in your 10,000 hours, like hanging out with, you know, Jay Leno, David Letterman, Jimmy Walker performing at the the store, uh, the the improv. These are these are huge things for someone for a teenager. I'm the luckiest person on planet
1: Earth. I am so I'm blessed. jealous. I am so <laughs> blessed. Like I said, when you look at that little black baby in 1961, that wouldn't have been your bet. I am so fortunate. You know, you know it's you know.
0: And you know, I see when your first appearance was on the Carson Show when you're 18. I see. You know, you go out there, you're confident, you're expressive, you know, you got them laughing three times in a row first before you know, you got you 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 got them to like you, you know, before you started in really and and then you're expressive, you know, you know, adults say the funniest things, but you're like, "Really?" Right. You
1: know, you you knew what you were doing. It's easy to see. Yeah, you know, uh, you know, I learned early on just watching Johnny Carson and Bob Hope. And I realized cuz I'm just standing there and I'm watching them I'm like It isn't about being the funny on television to succeed on TV. It's not about being the funniest. It's about being the most likable. Because on television, that's such an intimate medium. And that, you're in people's homes. You're in their bedrooms. You're in their living rooms. You're in their family rooms. You become, and they can spend five hours a day with you. As a matter of fact, when you're on television, they spend more time with you than their closest relatives. And the thing about television is that if you're not a good person, it will come through. Mm. And if you are a good person, it will come through. And if you are a good person, it will come through and people will feel comfortable with you and you can stay on that platform for decades. And people, because somebody asked me like, wow, I've been watching you on TV since 1979. You've been on television only in like 40 years. And go, what's your secret? I said, you know what? It's not about being the funniest. about being the most likable
0: because you know you see a lot of i mean i see this even at uh you know the clubs i'm involved with a lot of the guys who are strikingly funny you know just in terms of laughs per second i've never seen anything like it they don't somehow move ahead past that because you know maybe they're insult comics or they don't get that likability going and that really is to seem to be almost almost a more important skill or possibly a more important skill than the humor.
1: Yeah, and a lot of comics don't really get that. They don't understand that. You know, um, so I was fortunate enough to see that with Bob Hope. And, uh, and I would watch, because Bob Hope would use, well, first of all, the stage was built for Bob Hope that Johnny Carson did The Tonight Show. And Johnny had such a phenomenal st- a stage. It, it was stadium seating. It raked up. Right versus a lot of TV studios, they sat in a pit and you look down. But when you look down, it makes your eyes look down, and the camera it always looks as if your eyes are closed. So, Bob was smart, he developed a TV studio where the audience was stadium, it was stadium seating, and it forced his eyes to open up and look up at him. Was and that
0: it, new with Johnny Carson? Like, did Ed Sullivan have have that?
1: No, I mean, you think about the Ed Sullivan Theater. Think about where where Dave Let- David Letterman and now Colbert, where they do it. It's it's they're sitting in a pit, huh. and so you're kind of you're looking down, kind of forcing you. Now he may look up at the balcony, which is great. But what was great about Bob Hope's stage? Was that it had the stadium seating, and when you look up, it tends to force you to also open up your body, and you're more open and expressive because you are trying to perform. You're you're, you're emitting energy to perform to the person in the back row, so it's just it's more like a theater, but it's a TV studio. And the way That's he so do- interesting.
0: I never I've because I've performed myself in both types of uh, stage setups, and you're right. I've enjoyed much more when
1: the seats are sloping up. Because you're emitting more energy and you're performing up to them and you're opening up to them. And Bob Hope built this wonderful stage. And so he, uh, when Johnny would tape his show and Bob Hope would have a special and he had a special every quarter, what he would do is he would use Johnny's audience, Mm. right? Now remember the stage is really Bob Hope. That's what it was built for. And he was always had his specials. But what they would do is replace, they would bring the drapes down from the top of the the building. They'd just lower his drapes down, bring Johnny's drapes up with the multicolor drapes, Mm -hmm. and they would just bring down Bob Hope's drapes. And you didn't realize it was Johnny Carson's stage. And Bob would stand there in front of his drapes, not Johnny's, use Johnny's audience right after Johnny finished taping his show and he would do his 10 minute monologue that would be his special, opening for his special. And he had the audience in place, and he was able to go record his monologue for $5. It didn't cost him anything. Bring the drapes down, tape the audio, he didn't pay for anything, and they just recorded it and handed it off to Mr. Hope. Business show, not show business. And And I remember watching Bob do these monologues, and I remember thinking, that was cute, it was funny, it wasn't the funniest. And this is no disrespect to Bob, hope in any because I love him. But he was the most likable. And that's why he was on television all the decades.
0: What 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 do you think? What was the the what was the skill that he cultivated for likability? What did you, what did you see as you Just a good guy. Like-
1: just a good guy. These, you know, like you know, Jay Leno, David Letterman. like Lederman. some
0: people could cultivate it by being
1: self-deprecating right away. They were just good guys. They just wanted to make you laugh. Jay Leno, David Letterman. They're good guys. These are good guys. You know, these are really—they're just—they just want to make you laugh. They're just good guys.
0: Well, it's like again on your—I'm—I uh, keep calling back to your your first time on Carson. You come up there, and I—I I, I noticed you were likable without being self-deprecating. You were just—you know how you do, how you guys doing? You know, just you know you were clapping your hands with them. Uh, Thank you. Uh, you were you were like, how many of you have? How many of you have a parent? Yeah. That was funny, but it's likable because yeah. you're so young. It's like a, almost like this naive question, but it's a funny question.
1: Everyone has a parent and everyone yeah. starts clapping at that. And uh, I think uh, that was my second Tonight Show. We, we got to make sure you see our first yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. I want you to see the first one. Um, you know, look, I was really fortunate. I kept doing stand-up, right? And, uh, and I'm writing. One, I called Jim McCauley, who was the talent coordinator uh, for the Tonight Show. And I said, you know, I would really like for you to take a look at me and make sure that I'm on track to maybe one day be on the show, maybe five years from now, ten years from now. That's a
0: technique. Not to say, how do I get on the show or can I come on the show? You were asking for advice.
1: (laughs) And I was asking to make sure I was going in the right direction to eventually get there maybe five or ten years from the moment I called him. And uh, I just wanted to make sure I was heading in a direction that would be appreciated and supported. And uh, he said, okay, where are you going to be? And he came and looked at me. I said, the improv, and he came and looked at me at the improv. And it went well. And I got a call like a, a month or two later from him. He said, you know, uh, I want you to do the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. And I went, whoa. And I was 17 years old. And I told my mother, I said, I just got an offer to do the Tonight Show with Johnny. And she said, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to turn it down. And she goes, Why? I said because I'm 17 years old, and uh, this is a marathon, not a sprint. And when I do it, I want to make sure that I'm excellent when I'm given the opportunity. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna turn it down. And she said, "Okay." And so I called him up and I said, "Thank you for the offer. Uh, I'm 17 years old. I'm not ready. I want to at least make sure I'm gonna get out of high school." And I'm well, going to get well, into accepted into SC film school. I wanted to go to USC film school. I ended up going to USC film school. And uh, I said, I want to make sure I'm going to get out of high school and I'm going to get into college. And I just want to get some things off my plate. And so he said, I understand and I respect that. So I turned it down when I was 17.
0: But where did you think, I mean, it's a lot of self-awareness. Where did you think you were missing skills that you couldn't go on the on The Tonight Show?
1: My plan was to do well get offers and be able to accept those offers. Mm. And I was 17 and I was still in high school. So if I did well and I got offers, I couldn't accept them. Mm. Business show. And I just wanted to take my time and, and grow to it. So I ended up doing it two weeks before I graduated from high school. I was 18. And that was uh, transformative for me. And uh, I said, this is perfect. This is. Uh, I'll have a tape that will help me get booked into comedy clubs so I could play comedy clubs in the summer and pay for my college tuition to, through USC because obviously we didn't have the money for that. And I figured this was my plan to pay for my college tuition by doing, uh, the tonight show at 18. I thought it might help me get a date to the prom as well. So, did it? Uh, uh, barely, but <laughs> yes, uh, you know, last minute, I barely made it. Um, so, um, it went. Uh, it went very well. I remember, you know, throughout the years, I made it a point of, of, you know, hanging out in the parking lot and waiting for Johnny Carson to pull onto the lot. And he pulled onto the lot in his white Corvette, like clockwork, just like my dad or my grandfather would clock in at Ford or Great Lake Steel. He would clock in at NBC at two o'clock. You could turn your head to the right. And you would see, it. if you looked at your if watch at 2 o'clock, turn your head to the right, you would see that white Corvette pulling onto the lot. And he would pull into parking space, number one, and he would he had a little pep in his step. He loved what he did. And I would be near there, and I would say, in the summers mainly, I'd say, hello, Mr. Carson, good to see you today. That was a great show last night. And over the time, he got to know me. He goes, thank you, Byron. Thank you. Really appreciate it, young man. All right, Mr. Carson, have fun tonight. So i would have these little conversations with him over the years and he saw me and i got to know him and and i just stayed in the background hello mr carson and uh, he got to know me by name so i'm standing there behind the curtain and i'm joking around with the guys and you know the, the crew the set and they know me they, you know, everybody knows me because i'm standing i mean i would go and I would stand on his spot after they—because he would tape the show from 5.30 to 6.30. At 7 o'clock, that studio was empty. Hmm. He was back in his white Corvette at five, you know, 6.45 and driving back to Malibu. And it was literally—and I would stand there on his spot, and I would read his monologue. Because he put his monologue on a board that went across the length of the studio. And that way, when he was performing, he could go from joke to joke to joke. And he would decide which one he was going to do next instead of a cue card boy holding the next joke. He created that. Hmm. Because normally you would have someone flipping the cards. And if they flipped a card, you had to take that joke. He took all the jokes and put them on a board and had them go across the length of the studio. So he could go from joke one to joke eight, back to joke two, from joke two to joke nine, back to joke three. He could edit while he was standing there because he was feeling the audience and reading the audience as he was performing like a heavyweight fighter in the ring Mm -hmm. and i would stand there and i on his spot and i would read his jokes and i would sit behind his desk and i would interview some of the crew who were cleaning up and it was home for me so i'm standing there behind the curtain and i'm joking around with the guys and all of a sudden they just a serious look came on their face and they stopped laughing. They stopped joking. I'm like, I don't know what's going on. And they're like, <clears throat> and they clear their throats. And they go, and I turn around and it's Johnny Carson. We were in the commercial break and he was about to introduce me. He got up from behind his desk and he went behind the curtain where I was standing. And he looked at me and he said, son, don't worry. You're going to be great. It's the best. It's the best. And so you walk out there. I walk out there. I could have made chairs laugh. And I remember thinking, in the next five minutes, will change my life and my mother's life forever. It's a
0: lot of pressure you just put on
1: yourself. (laughs) A lot of pressure. Hmm. And I say, you know what? Go out there, have fun, and take care of business. Boom. He introduced me. I hit the spot. Boom, 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 boom. Next thing I know, he calls me over, shakes my hand. The next day, we had ten offers. Ten
0: offers. So okay, a couple couple of questions. One is you're putting a lot of pressure on yourself.
1: But I didn't see as pressure. I saw it as an opportunity.
0: But I think that's a, a mindset. A lot of people would see It was never pressure.
1: pressure. It was an opportunity. The pressure is not having the opportunity. Mm-hmm. You have seven billion people on the planet. of them never have the opportunity. I never saw it as pressure. Mm -hmm. I saw it as a blessing that I have the opportunity to change the trajectory of my life and my mother's life for the better forever. Because there were days, I remember, you know, we worried about food. I tried to get a job when I was 10 years old, boxing groceries. And they said, how old are you? I said, I'm 10. They said, you can't work here. I say, putting groceries in a bag? I said, I, I said, this guy's 18. He just put eggs at the bottom of the bag. I would never put, I'm 10 years old. I know not to put eggs at the bottom of the bag. My grandmother taught me that. And they said, no, you, you can't work here. And I remember walking out of the, it was Ralph's. It was Ralph's Supermarket, still there on La Brea. And I remember walking out and I saw this lady take a grocery basket and put it in a, in a, in a machine. And she took a stamp out of the machine. And I said, what is that? She said, well, if you bring in a, you, know, you bring in your basket, they give you a stamp. And when you get 100 stamps, they give you a dollar's worth of food. Mm-hmm. So I went, I went in the parking lot, and I gave myself a job, and I collected grocery baskets, and I kept putting stamps in the machine, putting baskets in the machine, and I would come home with $10 worth of food for my mother and I to eat. So I never saw it as pressure. I saw it as an opportunity. I saw it as a blessing.
0: So and, even given that, though, then you said... I went out there and I had fun. Was it hard to have fun with in this very first experience? And you no, know how great. it
1: I just, It was great. It was everything I had worked for. You know, it was great. It was like, and I wanted Johnny to laugh. We had a great time. It went well. He had a great time, and we had a number of offers. Joan Rivers was sweet. She offered me a sitcom. I remember that. I thought, wow, that's great. A fellow comedian, and uh, God bless her soul. And one of them was this show, and and you know at the time seventy nine. We only have three broadcast networks, ABC, NBC, CBS. And out of 66 hours of primetime television, I'm very numerical. I love numbers. Each network had 22 hours. There were 66 hours. And I said, you know, this show, this show is interesting to me because it's different from all the other shows. It's different from the other 65 hours of primetime television, this hour. What is What is this now? They said, it's a reality show. It's the first reality show ever. And what's it called? It's called Real People. I said, out of all the offers that I have, this is the show I want because I think this show will work because it's different from the other 65 hours of primetime TV. They said, okay, wow, maybe you want to go with this sitcom or that. And we had some really good offers from really good, solid people. And uh, I made the right pick. Real People ended up being... The granddaddy of all reality shows changed the face of television. Uh, I ended up, you know, the sh- you know, being one of the co-hosts, and that show sat there Wednesday nights at eight o'clock, and it went straight to the top ten, then top five, and it was number one, and it just it changed television. And I learned a lot working with George Schlatter; he was amazing, uh, the toughest boss I ever had, and pretty much yeah, he was my last boss, and he was the toughest, and I learned a lot, and I watched him interact with talent and writers and executives and the network. And I learned so much. And the show was great because it took me all over America. And I really got to see America. It wasn't just L.A. and New York. It was little tiny towns, Cochockton, Ohio, and Waterloo, Iowa, and you know Bangor, Maine. And some of these towns, they didn't have a stoplight. They had one stop sign. And population, you know, 500 people with some of these towns that I would go to. And uh, I loved it because I really got to see America. I got to see how America lives and thinks and acts, And it was an eye-opening experience for me because I was raised here in Los Angeles uh, and I was in a very diverse community. Uh, My community was one of the most diverse, diverse. I went to Fairfax High and everybody was at school with me. I didn't realize the segregation in America, until I hit the road. And
0: uh, and so did, did you find, for, first off, it sounds like this is kind of the beginning of almost your uh, your transition from performer to businessman. Yeah. You're, you're now you're started, involved in, almost, in the production of a show and you're Well, and I your was your producing
1: real people, but I was, you know, it was interesting. But, but and, mentally you were kind of producing it. I'm seeing it. I'm seeing it firsthand, how it's executed, how it's produced. You know, when I'm out there doing real people, when I'm out there on the road. And, uh, and I developed my own ideas on how I was seeing things done. And uh, it was just great. It was the, gr- the great experience for me was primetime network television, live. Uh, the show is changing the face of TV. This is when I get to also, um, I, I'm hanging out and talking and learning from Brandon Tartikoff and George Schlatter and Fred Silverman. These are the icons of television. And I'm learning from the best of the best. And then Real People went off the air in '84. And I went on tour at that point. I had, uh, I had one of the greatest personal appearance agents of all times, Ben Bernstein. And Ben Bernstein was my agent. And Ben represented everybody, every music act on the planet. And he had me out on tour with everybody, opening. And I'll never forget he called me up because we had an, we had an arrangement, Ben and I. I said, I said Ben, just ring, bring run everything by me. You know, Don't worry about it, big or small, just run it by me and, and I will be, I'll decide whether or not. He says, no problem. So Ben calls me up one day and he says, uh, you know, Byron, I run everything by you. I go, yeah, Ben, yeah, yeah. He says, listen, I know you probably won't be interested in this, but I got to run it by you. I said, okay, Ben, we got? What do you have? He says, well, there's this young lady it's like her second time on stage. And the record company is doing a showcase for her here in Los Angeles. And uh, they need somebody to warm up the crowd. It's going to be at the Roxy. And it's only going to be about two or 300 people. But it's the industry to introduce this young lady to the people in the LA and the industry. And, and it only pays like $25 just to warm up the crowd. But just wanted to let you know that you know, that's available if you're not doing anything next week and you want to warm up the crowd for this young lady. I go, $25? Ben, thanks. I appreciate you running that, bombing. I'm going to pass, you know, but thanks a lot. No, no problem. I go, by the way, what's this, you know, this girl's name anyway? He goes, Whitney Houston. <laughs> I go, what? I go, Whitney Houston. I said, you know what, Ben? I was at the record store yesterday, and I was walking down the aisle, And I saw this beautiful woman on the cover of this album, and I saw her, and I picked this album up, and I said, I don't even care if this girl can sing. She's so beautiful. I'm buying the album, (laughs) right? I said, but I actually bought it, and man, she could sing. Like, she's amazing. I said, Ben, let me be really clear. I'm accepting that gig. (laughs) okay i feel like you're like you're like the forrest gump of of
0: (laughs) comedy and entertainment like you kind of now luck is created by the prepared but yeah you're sort of stumbling into these amazing opportunities i'm
1: stumbling i'm like i have the most blessed life james i'm telling you so i said you got to get me a couple of tickets me for me and my mom i'm gonna take my mom this girl is amazing boom right so i go to the roxy i do my 25 minutes she hits the stage I think she had five standing ovations that night uh-huh. and never looked back. When, when you're opening up for
0: an act like that, is the audience like, ah, uh, just get to the act already. Do
1: you ever feel that pressure? Some of the, some of the shows. Uh-huh. I mean, look, I was, you know, I, I did a, a, you know, I went out on two. Ben had me out with everybody, opening for Lionel Richie, Kenny Rogers, The Pointer Sisters, Dolly Parton, Al Jarreau, uh, Smokey Robinson, Gladys Knight, Patty LaBelle, uh, Julie Andrews, Sammy Davis Jr., um, Paul Anka. Uh, it's hard for me to think of who I didn't open for. I'm, uh, you know, I'm playing, you know, Carnegie Hall to 18,000 seat, you know, arenas in Boise, Idaho, with, you know, with, you know, with Lionel Richie to, you know, casinos, every casino. I'm at Caesars Palace with, you know, with Sammy Davis Jr. You know, it's like, and, I bought and, and, the rights to make Sammy's movie because I went on tour with him and opened for him. And, uh, you know, so it, it's it's just so, I'm so, because I'm traveling with all of these amazing artists and I'm watching them and I'm watching how they, their process and how they get prepared. I'm super blessed. So I go on the tour and I just open for Everybody. And I'm also doing comedy clubs when I'm not opening for them and, and, uh, and I'm writing and, you know, I'm just, and then I made it a point. This is, you're right. This is when it kind of starts to move into the, the business, you know, business show, not show business. I made it a point that when I went on the road, I always invited all the people who owned and operated the the local television stations Mm. to come to our, our concerts and to come to our show. So I got to know everybody who owned and operated TV stations in America. Because I watched Bob Hope, somebody, I remember, I was standing around and somebody says something about, Bob Hope's TV specials will be on until the end of time because Bob Hope is best friends with the guy who owns the network. And I remember being a kid and Bob Hope plays golf with the guy who owns the network so bob hope will always be on and i remember being a little kid and just overhearing that conversation
0: but it's so important the lesson out of that is relationships build business
1: not the other way around there it is but how fortunate am i to hear that at 12 and let that sink in and accept it Mm -hmm. so i made it a point to make sure all the people who own and operate tv stations come on out and get to know me and hang out and and it was that simple little, because Bob Hope knows them and they know him. There's never an issue. So I went to my first, I had a I had a contract dispute with real people. And uh, they had kicked me off the show for a short period of time, but it later brought me back. And I didn't like that feeling. And I really wanted to, really, that accelerated wanting to learn the business side of show business. So I went to my first NATP. The National Association of Television Programming Executives in January of 1981. And I've gone every year since. So we're coming up on my 38th consecutive NATP. And I go there January of nineteen eighty-one, is at the New York Hilton and on Sixth Avenue, Avenue of the Americas. And I go there, I'm in the lobby, and I go with my mother. 18, 19 years old at this point. And, uh, and I walk in and I say, who's the best in the business? I'm in the lobby. And they, say, they said, Al Massini, Al Messini. I go, where is he? It's upstairs on the 40-something floor. So I go up the elevator. We had to wait a half an hour because it was packed. Hotel was not big enough to handle this convention. Mm-hmm. It's packed. We go up to a suite. I go up to a suite. And I walk into a suite. And his back is to me. Because he's speaking to a group of men. And to the right of him is a monitor wall. And on that wall, no one had ever seen a monitor wall before, like a a wall of monitors. It was new. This is January of 81. And on it was this clip talking about the show. And it was an interview with Burt Reynolds on the set of Smokey and the Bandit. The biggest movie star in the world, Burt Reynolds. And he's talking and he says, listen. He goes, I've created this show. And he goes, and I've de- we have technology that's going to revolutionize the way we produce and deliver television going forward. He goes, it's called satellite technology. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to produce the show and shoot the show at 1230. And then I'm going to put it on this satellite at 2 o'clock. You are all going to take it off the satellite. And they're like, ow, how are we going to take it off the satellite? He goes, I have a budget of $30 million. I'm buying all of you a satellite dish. It's the most expensive television show in the history of America. And I'm hearing him. And he's saying, he goes, You're gonna have this satellite dish and you're gonna pull it down. He goes, I'm pulling you out of the dark ages. Because up until this point, they used to bicycle tapes. So you would, if you've made a television show, you would send it to Chicago. Chicago will make a copy and send it to Cleveland. Cleveland will make a copy and send it to Columbus, Ohio. Columbus will make a copy and send it to Philadelphia. So we were bicycling tapes. He says, no more bicycling tapes. I'm going to, I'm going to satellite it to you, and everybody's going to run the same show at the same time. And that is, that is now we were that is revolutionary and we've we've moved into the next stage of television syndication. They said, okay, what's the name of the show, Al? They said the name, he says the name of the show is Entertainment Tonight. And I've got the biggest movie star in the world on the set. Burt Reynolds. Look at it. He's got it up on the monitor wall. And I watched him sell entertainment tonight, January of 81. And it came on the air September of 81. And I walked up. I said, Mr. Messini, my name is Byron Allen. It's nice to meet you. I said, I understand you're the best in the business. And he he says, well, that's very nice of you. I said, I'm here to learn from you, sir. He says, oh, okay. I said, so where are we having dinner tonight? (laughs) And he says, well, I'm I'm going to dinner with some clients, taking them to an Italian restaurant. I said, save me a seat. <laughs> so I go to the restaurant. He recognized me from real people. I go to the restaurant, never left his side. He became like a second father. And, uh, and I became like the son he never had. And he was just the greatest. He was such a good person. And I watched him sell Entertainment Tonight and Star Search and Lifestyles of Rich and Famous and Solid Gold and Runaway with the Rich and Famous. He did the first mini series, A Woman Called Golda, about Golda Meir. He then did Hoffa. He was just magnificent. And I learned so, so much from him. Uh, and He was just such a great human being. And I could talk to him about anything. I could talk to him about anything. And he never made me feel ashamed. And he always said, oh, that's no big deal. Here's how you handle this. Don't worry about that. Oh, yeah, let's do this. Okay, don't worry about it. He was just the best. And, uh... He was just phenomenal i learned so much where was he working who was he working for he was he created a company started a company from his dining room table which is what inspired me to start from my dining room table called telerep and he his his real job was representing local television stations and selling their local television airtime to national advertisers and he started that from his dining room table and he built that up to a a billion dollar a year division he sold over a billion dollars a year of ad time that's how he made his money and, and 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 he did the television shows because it was a great creative expression for him and he liked all the pretty girls that he hired for solid gold and because the solid gold dancers and so you know he, he was just a he was a guy's guy he was just a great guy he he loved the beautiful women <laughs> but but, but it seemed, it's
0: interesting how he tied in the selling of advertising with the producing of shows much business. like that was the business, and but much like how you did when you started Entertainment Studios, you were you took you had skin in the game selling the ads That's on right. the shows you were selling to CBS and NBC. He, showed, and, he
1: taught me how to do it,
0: and you were the only guy doing it, like in the nineties. Well,
1: he was. I learned from Al Massini, who who created those shows. I learned from Dick Robertson, who ran Warner Brothers Studios, uh, the television division. I learned from Michael and Roger King, who gave us Wheel of Fortune, Jeopardy, Oprah. Oprah. And uh and inside Edition, I, I I just attached myself to these guys. And I just made sure I was a sponge and I learned how to create, finance, produce, and distribute television shows. You you don't, you don't I have 41 shows on the air today. I have that on because Al Massini and Dick Robertson and Michael and Roger King are a part of my DNA. They showed me how to do it. They taught
0: me how to do it so what what's a takeaway from that like let's say someone's listening to this and they want to you know succeed at their profession or go into entertainment i mean you had uh you know a very aggressive like hey i'm going to dinner with you like what's i mean definitely having a mentor is important or multiple mentors from jimmy walker on uh you had mentors every step of the way so that's important getting a mentor I think the thing is, you and you
1: get them also from watching and studying and reading. You can yeah. learn from their moves. You know, they can they can be your mentor w- without you ever meeting them. Mm. And I've had a lot of mentors that I didn't. I've never really don't know that. I don't know that well. But I've read all their books and I've read all the articles and I've studied their moves. And I know, the, I know the playbook. You know, I was I was just really. You know, look, Massini said, "Start where you are." That's what Al. One of the things Al Massini said: "Start where you are." And he goes, I started from my dining room table. I started my company from my dining room table. Al said, I took the radio shows that I listened to as a kid, and I made them TV shows. He said, look, Entertainment Tonight was Heidi Hopper. She was somebody on the radio talking about all the movie stars. He said, Star Search was hit, Was uh, was uh, Ted Max Amateur Hour. He said, Solid Gold was Hit Parade. Mm-hmm. He took all the radio shows he listened to as a kid, and he just made them visual. He made them TV. I took all the magazines that I would go and read at the magazine stand and converted them into TV shows. So I did the same thing, and I learned from him. I started from my dining room table. I started, I interviewed six or seven funny friends, comedians, and I made my first one hour special where I interviewed them out on the field, walking down the street, you know, in the back of a car. Or, or in a limo or whatever it was, or you know, just on the set of their, of their sitcoms. And I made my first one-hour special. And I said, you know what? I'm going to make this show a weekly one-hour show. And I'm going to give it away. It's got 14 minutes of commercial time. Uh, I'm going to give it to the TV stations for free, which is known as barter. I'm going to keep seven minutes of the commercial time. And I'm, the stations are going to keep seven minutes of the commercial time. Of the 14 minutes in that one hour show i'm going to sell my seven minutes to national advertisers they will sell their seven minutes to local advertisers local car dealers banks and supermarkets i'm going to sell my seven minutes to johnson and johnson so There's almost no risk to them no risk because it's free it's free and, and i'm getting i'm interviewing all these
0: stars they could cancel you anytime if you don't get deliver. rid of them he's out of here
1: and I'm going to sell my seven minutes to Johnson & Johnson and Pepsi and McDonald's and, 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 and General Motors. And that's, right? So the hardest thing I've ever done, James, I said, Tribune said to me, if you get 80%, of 75 80% of the country, we're going to give you a 400,000 lineup, right? Your footprint has a lineup. We're going to give you a $400,000 advance and sell your advertising time. Four hundred grand, is so you can go into production. And then we're going to sell your advertising so you can stay in production. So I sat at my dining room table from sunup to sundown. And I called all 1,300, approximately 1,300 commercial television stations. And I asked them to carry the show for free. A one-hour show interviewing the world's biggest movie stars. 14 minutes of commercial time. I keep seven minutes. You keep seven minutes. Literally, I got 50 no's from every television station. Every television station in the country. And after about 40,000 plus no's, I was able to squeeze out about 150 yeses. And I got a yes, a TV station in every market from New York to Bangor, Maine. And that was my lineup. And it was a year. And I literally sat there from six in the morning till six or seven or nine, at night. 'Cause that's when I couldn't reach TV stations much after seven o'clock. And six in the morning I would start calling the East Coast. And then, you know, when I got to about, you know, eight or nine in the morning, I started calling the Midwest a little bit. And then I got in the afternoon and started calling the West Coast stations. And I just swept the country every morning, Monday through Friday. And uh, you know, I did that and I wore holes and literally wore holes in my chairs. And uh I'll never forget <clears throat> My mother was doing my paperwork. And I'll never forget, she would, if I got a sale done, she would put it on the clearance list. And so if I didn't have a, a TV station, markets one through 210, because there's about 210 markets, you put a TV station in each one, you sold it to them. So I would go chase down the holes, fill in the holes. Hmm. And I noticed that she had not put in wilkes Bear, and I had gotten it done. I had gotten wilkes Bear done, Saturday night at 11.30 opposite Saturday Night Live. So I called my mom. I go, well, how come you don't have wilkes Bear, WHP, the CBS affiliate, on the clearance list? She goes, well, she goes, she starts shuffling around looking for papers." And I go, mom, you can't, these deals are really too hard to come by. You got to have a better system. We cannot lose these, these contracts like this. She goes, no. She goes, I don't have it. I go, oh, my goodness. So I call the guy. I go, I call the guy back. I say, Bob, it's Byron. It appears as if my executive assistant has misplaced your paperwork. I want to see if I can get you to send it again. He goes, no, no. He goes, no. He goes, uh, it's not going to happen. He goes, I know I told you I was going to give you the deal, but we're not going to do it. I go, what do you mean? He says, well, I had three guys in here from Paramount sales guys from Paramount. And they told me that you were calling me from your dining room table and that you were, uh, you were, you were in your underwear and, uh, that this show was never going to show up and, if the show did show up, it was going to be on the air for two or three weeks and then it was going to get canceled because you don't have the money to produce the show. So I am—I um, gave them your time period. I go, you, you gave them my time period? And this is, James, this is, really exceptionally rare because when a tv station says something that's as good as gold no one goes back on their it's rare someone in the tv industry goes back on their on their word movie industry all the time tv no so i said really i said so how many guys did paramount send in he said about three of them he says three of them. my god oh. i said they have on nice suits he goes yeah I said they have it. The, like, did they have their initials on their shirts? You know. You know. He goes, yeah. He goes, yeah. I said, I, I know. They get paid a lot over there, at Paramount. I said, listen up, Bob. I said they're right. I am calling you from my dining room table. I am in my underwear. But they're wrong about this. I am going to put the show on the air. The show is going to get on the air, and because of what they said to you about me, and because you decided to believe them and not live up to your deal with me, you tell the boys at Paramount that I am never, ever, ever, ever going to cancel that show. And it will stay on the air until the end of time because they will never be able to say that to another TV station about me and my TV shows ever again. So let them know they stole this one, but they will never get another win on me again. I'm shutting them down. He says, okay. Okay. I will let them know. I said, all right. Two weeks later, Tribune says, right? We changed our mind. We're not sending you the 400 grand and we're not going to sell your ad time after a year of sitting at my dining room table. Now, this was the defining moment. I said, oh my God, I'm not going to sit here one year of my life and call all those TV stations back and tell them Paramount is right. Was right. I'm calling you from my dining room table in my underwear, and I cannot deliver this show. I said, I don't know how I'm going to do it. I'm going forward. I'm going forward, and I'm not backing down. So I went forward. I went forward and produced the show. I didn't have two nickels to rub together. So over about a five year period, my home went in and out of foreclosure, probably. 15 times
0: what'd you do each time to get it out of foreclosure
1: you would catch up there was a lady at the bank i think it was bank of america and she said to me your home keeps your, your file keeps coming on my desk what's going on i said "Well, i'm trying to fund a television show and i have to pay the cameraman and i have to pay the editor and i have to pay for tape and i have to put it on the satellite and get it delivered to my tv stations and i have to pay my phone bill
0: so you were so, so you were producing the show at this time. I'm and producing
1: delivering. the show, and I'm I'm just paying my cameraman. I'm not. There are days I'm not eating. Who are you getting on the show? Like were you also Every, calling all the movie the, stars? Everybody's on the show. Were you the one calling them? No, I had out? a talent. I had one employee, Joan mm-hmm. Robbins. She still works for me. She was the first employee I hired. 25 years later, I had one employee, so she's booking everybody. And there are days I'm not eating. There are days they're turning off my phone. This is before we had mobile phones. I had to call people from pay, uh, from pay phones when they turned off my phone. There are days that you know my ho- so she said to me she said if she goes i can she goes just don't let it go past day 89 she goes day 89 stays with me she goes if it goes to day 90 this is the lady of bank of america there's it goes to the lady next door to me and you don't want to talk to her mm-hmm. you don't want to know her and you don't want her to know you she goes just get it paid every eight, eighty-nine days so I would float my mortgage payment and I would pay it every 89 days because I was floating and using it to uh, to pay for the cameraman and pay for the, the- And
0: were you also getting the ads? Like were you calling the big
1: companies? And I had to learn how to sell ads. So the biggest blow when Tribune didn't send me that 400 grand was that they, it, that was a big blow. But the biggest blow was they didn't sell my average. I didn't, I had, to, I had to learn how to. I didn't know how to sell advertising. So I called somebody up and said, "Will you buy advertising. They go, you missed the upfront. I go, what's the upfront? I didn't know there was this whole ad process where $170 billion gets placed in about a two-month period. And if you miss that train, you got to wait a whole nother year for that $170 billion to come back around. So they go, the only thing available to you is direct response. I go, whatever it is, I'll take it. So direct response, I started selling all my ad time to 1-800 spray on hair and 1-800 abs in 24 hours. So that's what I was just calling and they would FedEx me checks because they didn't care about my ratings. All they cared about is did you make, because they gave me a unique phone number. It was unique to me. Either I made the phone ring or I didn't and I was making the phone ring. And so they were like, "Okay, people are buying spray-on hair, and they send me another five hundred bucks." Okay, they're buying abs in twenty-four hours. They send me another eight hundred bucks, and I just and disco songs of the 90s of the seventies, and love songs of the eighties, and I just kept. It was one eight hundred, whatever, and I just kept selling. And so for the first, the miracle of my company is that I made it off of direct response, and I had to teach myself how to sell it, and I could not get any investors. No one would invest a nickel with me, and I couldn't get a bank loan. The first 15 years, this is our 25th anniversary, James, the first 15 years of this company, I had factors, factor my receivables, and I was paying as much as 25 26% interest. I couldn't get a bank loan and I couldn't get an investor and these were some of the be- later it became some of the best receivables ever it became Coca-Cola and McDonald's and Pepsi and and Johnson and Johnson and and you know some General Motors and
0: but but initially you were essentially making the spread between all these ad dollars across all the stations minus your production costs and satellite costs and delivery costs and so on minus this interest payment yeah and, and The that interest was, payment was
1: huge. And you had to make a profit or else you'd die. <laughs> and well, yeah, and I had to keep moving. And I had to keep moving like a shark because mm. I it never could never stop. And I just kept smiling and dialing, dialing and smiling and smiling and dialing, calling TV stations, calling TV stations. And finally, I sat with all the heads of the movie studios. And I said, listen, I'm having all your movie stars on, seven a week. I'm interviewing your, your, you know, Tom Cruise, you know, Tom Hanks, you know, Denzel Washington, Halle Berry. I'm interviewing, That's like
0: a booking agent you had. Right,
1: you know, I'm, yes, Joan Robbins is the best. And I'm interviewing all of them. I said, I'm having, and I'm showing your clips, your trailers. You guys are spending 200 to $700 million a year each advertising movies. Why don't you advertise with me some of that money so I can be there to support you? Because I have a one-hour commercial saying, go to the movies. And they said, you know what? You're right. And Tom Sherrick, God bless his soul, 20th Century Fox, came on board, delivered me 20th Century Fox. Uh, You know, Dick Cook over at Disney delivered me Disney. Arthur Cohen over at Paramount gave me Paramount. And I just went studio by studio, and I started signing them all up. Next thing you know, I had all the studios as my client, and I learned. I had another wonderful epiphany, which is it isn't about me, it's about you. Don't talk about what... You know what you can do for me. Talk about as a salesperson, what I can do for you. What I can do for you is I can have this one-hour commercial with your movie star, right? With which your has clips. a monetary value. It has a monetary value. I'm basically it is a one-hour commercial saying to go see your movies. And once I solidified the movie industry, I went on the road because I was able to eat regularly and pay my mortgage and pay my phone bill and go travel. And show up at the tv stations the way the paramount guys did and i was able to go on the road and then i solidified industry by industry i went and sat with the board board of directors board members chief marketing officers whoever 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 i could talk to of those corporations and i solidified the pharmaceutical industry and then the fast food industry and then the soft drink industry and the automotive industry and the Package good industry. And the next thing you know, I looked up and I was in business with every television station in the country and every major ad agency and every major advertiser in the country. And I had a direct relationship with all points of distribution and advertising. And I said, this is unique. I am in business directly because I only have like three rules of business. That's all I have. I only have three rules. I say, we well, only need to know three things about business. Number one, don't let anybody come in between you and the customer. Number two, do not run out of money. And number three, do not break rules one and two.
0: So, okay, let me ask you a question about that. The f- rule number one, um, let's take a company like HBO. They, de- For years, for decades, they had to go through the cable companies. They didn't really know their
1: customers. And, and now the, you flourish. have HBO going, they're going direct. But now they're so, going direct. Right. So I was able to, I immediately after going through this process, I was like, this is a blessing. Now I'm direct with every television station in the country and I'm direct with all the major ad agencies and advertisers. So now I'm sitting at my dining room table and I'm able to put, you know, I said, I'm going to do a special. And I said, I'm gonna, when I was a kid and I used to wait, I used to come home. I was a latchkey kid. And, you know, I would come home and I would open, i take the key and open the apartment door and I would sit there and make a bowl of Captain Crunch cereal and do my homework and wait for my mother to come home and watch TV and I'm in the apartment by myself. And uh, I used to love Merv Griffin and Dine Shore and Mike Douglas and they used to do theme shows. And I thought, you know, I'm going to do a theme show, the kind of theme show I used to watch when I was waiting for my mom to come home. Uh, and I said, what can I do? And because I was in a room, a very small room, and I said to my producer, Mike Androsky, who's still with me today, 25 years later, I said, Mike, what are all these tapes in this, this room? He goes, that's your library. I go, really? I goes, yeah. He goes, you own all of this. I go, wow he goes, and as a matter of fact, it's spreading like crazy. Like, we've, you've got another room down the hall. you got another one over here. I go, okay. I said, I should do a theme show. And I started thinking, oh, should I do something with all the country and Western singers, blah, blah, blah. I said, you know, I'm going to do something with all the athletes that I've interviewed. And so I took all the interviews I'd done with athletes that had been spread out over various shows along with the movie stars. Because we had on seven stars per week. I said, but I'm going to just take the athletes and put them in one special and make a one-hour show. And I had some great ones on the shelf, So my first one hour special was Michael Jordan, Steve Young, Hakeem Olajuwon, Oscar De La Hoya, Penny Hardaway, Dennis Rodman, Riddick Bowe, and Grant Hill. And I remember this because I said, I wanted to see if I can clear a market, a TV station in every market in America, all 210. So I called all two, because I called ABC and, and NBC and said, can I buy an hour? To put this, and Michael Jordan is Michael. This is the '90s. This is like '93, '94. Right. Michael Jordan is the king of basketball, and they said two hundred and fifty grand, but we can only guarantee you seventy five percent of the country. I got a quarter of a million. I didn't have. I did not have a quarter of a million bucks. And I said, no, I'm just going to clear it myself. I hung up the phone and said, I'll go get a station in every market, and I will do better than 75% of the country. I'll do 99. You never get 100% because not every home in America has a TV station. I'll get 99% of the country, and I'll save a quarter of a million bucks. So I called every market, and I got a TV station and in every market, and I ended up clearing 99% of the country, and I saved a quarter of a million bucks. And so then I called advertisers. I had to go sell my ad time. And I called the advertisers and I told him everybody I had on the show. And this show, by the way, this special cost me less than 10 grand to put together because it was sitting on the shelf. It was 10,000 bucks to put together. So they said, I said I got all these Michael Jordan, blah, blah, blah. And they go, How much a 30? And I said, 30,000 a 30. The guy said, I'll take four. I went, What? <laughs> and then I thought, OK. And then I called the next guy and I said, How much a 30? I said, 50,000 a 30. He says, I'll take four. <laughs> oh my god and next thing i know i just start going okay eighty thousand to 30 100 i took this special that was literally interviews collecting dust i ended up selling over a million dollars worth of advertising Mm -hmm. right made a million bucks off of nothing and that's how i opened these offices that's why we have a floor and a half here in century city the whole nine yards and i learned the value of owning the content and owning it 100% and how you're able to repurpose it and how you're able to package it. And I knew then, okay, we have a direct pipeline. We can put on, now that we have studied and mastered business show and not show business, we can put on as many shows as we want. You can scale that. You can scale it. And so then I just kept smiling and dialing. So next thing you know, we have 41 shows on and we have, we're the largest we're the largest independent producer distributor of first run television shows one of the largest privately held television libraries in the world close to 5000 hours but the most important thing the show that paramount said would never get would never get on the air is still on the air 25 years later and we have never even given a thought to we'll cancel it. That show? entertainers with Byron Allen so so and so the guys at paramount or any other studio has never, ever been able to say Byron's show won't be there. We shut that down 25 years ago.
0: So, Byron, I don't want to stop talking. What time is it?
1: Keep going. Let's go.
0: No, the problem is we have a 2 o'clock plane.
1: Oh, you have to? What time (laughs) is it? Eleven forty. 40. Oh, I'll wrap you up. Come on, let's Dude, keep going.
0: But wait, wait, wait. First, though, can we do a part two at some point? When? Yeah. No, let's when keep going. I'm
1: going to wrap you up. Well, come no, on, you know. but I
0: have too much to ask. I no, want to ask all of the Weather let, Channel, let the let State of TV, I'll, comedy. James, you're
1: overthinking it. I'm going to wrap you up. Here you go. Watch this. We'll, get, we'll be done in 20 minutes. You're going to see everything. It picks up from here. I had to lay the foundation for you. So here's what happens. You don't it.
0: understand. I have I have two hours worth of questions to ask. You're going to
1: see in 20 minutes they're going to be answered. So here's what's going to happen. So here, just relax. I'm going to lay it on you like you never had it before. Like you watch this. Right. So here's what happens. So we end up doing it. We 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 end up putting these shows on the air. We have this large library. And I'm in New York, and I'm at a junket. I'm waiting to interview. Um, some movie stars. I I, I think it was, I don't know what it was, Jerry Maguire or whatever it was. Uh, And I see in the New York Times that Verizon is investing $23 billion to bring fiber to the home to offer 150 HD channels. So I go to Verizon. I said, hey, I understand you guys are going to offer 150 HD channels. I said, that's right. 24-hour networks. I said, well, I'm here to offer you 10 of them. They said, well, how many do you have now? I said, zero. And he said, okay, this guy's cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. I go, yeah, I said, before you call security, I said, let me tell you what I'm thinking. They go, yeah, what are you thinking, buddy? I said, I'm originally from Detroit, Michigan. And I said, my dad worked at Ford Motor Company. My granddaddy worked at Great Lakes Steel. And these guys were very efficient Ford Motor Company, Industrial Revolution way. I said, I never saw such waste until I started doing real people. And some of the crews not all the crews were trying to figure out how to get paid for how to work for 2 hours and get paid for 12 and i said i want to reverse that i said so when i send a camera crew or camera crews to pebble beach to shoot the car show concourse d'elegance i don't want them to just shoot the car show uh, for our 24 hour car network cars.tv i want them to shoot the resorts up there for our travel channel mydestination.tv i want them to shoot the restaurants up there and the chefs up there for our cooking channel, Recipe.TV. And I want them to shoot what's going on in the pet community for our pet channel, Pets.TV, and shoot all the movie stars that come up there for our entertainment channel, ES.TV. And I bought all the premium .TVs, and I think that Internet 1.0 is .com, which is read it, but I think we're going to rapidly move towards streaming. So over the last 12 years, I've bought all the .TVs because .TV says watch it, over the internet and we as human beings we watch more than we read and .com is about reading .tv is about watching and i bought every premium .tv out there and they said you know what we've heard a lot of pitches that's brilliant we're not going to give you 10 networks we're going to give you 6 and we made history with a stroke of a pen of a signature we launched 6 24-hour cable networks on Verizon what was files. the economics? Like, did they pay you? They paid us a sub fee mm-hmm. and we keep 16 and 16 minutes an hour in advertising. Mm-hmm. So we go, and then I went back and I launched a seventh network. I told them that I was in the court business and we're the largest producer of court shows. I told my set designer, Jimmy Cuomo, I said, Judge Judy's doing like two 200 million a year in revenue and syndication. I said, I want to be in the court business. So I said, keep an eye on a court set. So Jimmy calls me up. Jimmy says, hey, Byron, 20th Century Fox has a court show that they've canceled. And they've got this half a million dollar set that's beautiful and magnificent. And they're going to throw it in the trash can. They're going to throw it in the trash. I said, Jimmy, I said, call him up. Tell him not to touch that set. And he goes, well, what do you want me to offer him? Tell them, I said, tell him the, I proudly offer them one dollar. And he kind of chuckled. He said, one dollar. I said, yeah, they're going to laugh just like that, Jimmy. And that's when you're going to remind them that the human resources to strike that set and throw it in a trash can and and bends and haul it off the lot will cost them 50 to 100,000 in human resources, and that I'm going to save them 100,000 in human resources to throw that elaborate set in the trash can. Offer them a dollar immediately, please. So he says, Okay. He called me back the next day and he went, you're not going to believe this. They accepted your dollar. Mm -hmm. So I bought my first court set for a dollar and I put Judge Ross on there and we launched America's Court with Judge Ross and then we signed Maybelline and Hatchin and Perez. We ended up with six court shows and then I went to Verizon. I said, we're the largest producer of court shows and we launched a 24-hour court network and that was our seventh network. Then I had a buddy come to me, um, Chris Walters. And Chris Walter's CEO was the CEO of the, of, at the time of of a company that satellites 24-hour networks, ours and NFL Channel and a bunch of other wonderful people, uh, networks. And he says, can we have dinner? And I said, sure. He says, you don't know this, but before I ran this company satelliting cable networks all over the world, including yours, Byron, uh, your seven networks, he said, I used to be the chief operating officer or something along those lines at the Weather Channel. And he goes, the way you think, The way you see things, the way you operate, he goes, you are perfect for owning the Weather Channel. He goes, you don't think about the Weather Channel because you're in L.A. and it's always 80 degrees and sunny. He goes, but it is a phenomenal business. It prints money. The people who own it have owned it for 10 years, Bain and Blackstone, along with Comcast. They're ready to sell. And I said, okay. I said, let me get in there and see what I can do. I happened to have met Schwartzman from Blackstone. And and, uh, and so I went in and I made an offer. And we got into a bidding war, and we ended up winning the bidding war. We bought the Weather Channel, and uh, it's a phenomenal asset because it is a great business. It is very important. It's the only network that protects and saves lives and businesses and homes, and it's the number one weather news service in America, and it's thirty-seven years strong.
0: And it's weather twenty-four hours. A day? Weather twenty-four. So you don't hour...
1: do other shows. It's just weather. don't do other shows. It's weather, 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 and it's about protecting you and making sure that you and your family and your loved ones are okay. You have the information you need in real time. So so let
0: me understand the economics. So they bought it originally for around $3 billion. They sold off their digital assets for about $2 billion, right? And then you bought for $300 million. I bought for billion. Where did they
1: make... They, I, I, and by the way, they, they were making lots of good money along the way. So the, I see. The, so they were
0: pulling cash yeah, out. Oh, yeah. So oh, they're, not, they're not crying.
1: Oh, my God, No, 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 no. This thing... Printing money. They just owned it for 10 years and you know private equity better than most. Close the fund. You you, got to close the fund and move on. Otherwise, you would never sell it. Why would you ever sell it? I mean, I never want to sell the weather channel. I want my grandkids to go, granddaddy did okay. So I mean that's one of those, it's a legacy asset, and I love it. It's a phenomenal business. So we bought the weather channel. And uh we have now eight networks, but with the weather channel, we got a gym in there that was just unique. They they launched something called local now. And Local Now has proprietary software where we're able to, it's hyper-local what's going on in your community based on your zip code and no one else has that on the internet. So the internet has replicated, you know, record stores and bookstores and garage sales with eBay, but no one has replicated the local television affiliate. And that's what Local Now is. And I went, you don't even realize what you have here. You have replicated localization of, of of affiliates tv affiliates across the country i said local now is going to end up being one of the biggest things we have at this company is taking that because it is it's it's hyper localism through the internet and that through news weather sports and information now, i
0: bet you could do deals with that with all the affiliates because yes. that's going to be the only thing that keeps them alive that's ultimately. right
1: that's exactly right so we did that and so then uh, after we, we we bought the Weather Channel, uh, it was. I'm very acquisitive now. I'm looking to buy companies. I've made it very clear. My, my ambitions are very clear. I'm. You know, when my wife met me 18 years ago, she said, "What are you doing with your life?" I said, "I'm building the world's biggest media company." And when she met me, I was you know I was in a condo, a one bedroom condo and two bedrooms and one bedroom was an office. The other was my bedroom. And I said, I'm building the world's biggest media company. And, uh, and she goes, and I was at my dining room table at that point. So I said, you know, so now I'm very acquisitive and we're buying companies and we're building it up. And my goal is to, is simply very clear, is to build the world's biggest media company. And we're doing it through, you know, content. Look, a hundred years ago, it was the industrial revolution. And what fueled, fueled the Industrial Revolution was gas and oil. Gas and oil is what fueled that. Today, it's the digital revolution. And what's fueling that is content. That is what's fueling that. And so I'm taking exactly what Rockefeller did 100 years ago, vertical integration where he went and he created he invented pretty much vertical integration with the industrial revolution and taking oil out of the ground and sending it to the refineries and the pipelines and to the gas stations and to the ga- and to the gas tank and cash register and hit repeat it's the same thing that's why we own our content 100%. And that's why we're the first to achieve television everywhere because we own our content and we're able to go on every device everywhere in the world direct to the consumer, which is why we own all of these premium .TVs. Cars.TV, Comedy.TV, Recipe.TV, Pets.TV, and some we haven't even turned on. News.TV, Kids.TV, Sports.TV. I bought them all when everybody was looking the other way. And now we have... You
0: do esports.tv also.
1: Esports. I think we may have it. If we don't, yeah. we'll buy it. But we bought them all, and we we can now take this content and go and chase 4 billion worldwide connected devices. That's what we're doing. And along the way, because um, it's a real passion of my mother, and it's been a passion of mine, and also my, my mentor, Al Massini, said, I'll never forget, he said to me... He said, Byron, he says, with you, I've, I've pretty much created a monster. I'll never forget that. He says, you're unstoppable. He says, TV, he says, you'll do that in your sleep. No one will come near you. Whatever you want to do, he says, you will always dominate the TV game. He goes, but I want you to do me a favor. I go, what's that? He goes, I want you to make movies. Because I think it was always his passion.'" And he's because he made the miniseries, a woman called Golder, Golda, Golda, and about Golda Meir, And He did Jimmy Hoffa, and I think he really wanted to make movies. And so he was like, he goes, "TV's easy for you." He goes, "You can do this in a coma." He goes, "I want you to make movies." He goes, "I want you on that stage. I want you to go get an Oscar. Just do it because it's just I want you to do it." Like
0: so, so wait, By- Byron. Here's the thing: I know the movie story, and I want to talk. I
1: have a. Mil- you so should, let me. Just, I have Jay, a million questions. You're not going to be able to round it up because I have a million questions. But watch this. Th- give me three minutes. We have
0: the problem. You have to promise a part two.
1: Yeah. Right, so I I will do part two. All right. We could do part three. You're my new friend. <laughs> You're my new friend. We could do part. And then we the, have to do dinner after part two. We could do I that you. So so here's the deal. On the movie industry, it was real simple. I always wanted to be in it, but I always wanted to be like, I wanted to be direct to the theaters, and no one has ever been direct to the theaters. So, um. There was a woman, a wonderful, lovely woman, Susan Jackson. Unfortunately, she lost her battle to cancer. So I went to her business partner, and I said, Susan, unfortunately, has passed away. Do you want to sell the company? And he said, yes. And I said, how much do you want for the company? He gave me a number. We were at lunch. And I said, okay, uh, you may now consider your company sold. And he kind of looked at me, almost choked. I go, I'm sorry. I, I said, you know what? I should have explained. I own my company 100%. I don't have a board of directors. No analysis paralysis. I asked you if you would sell it. You said yes. You gave me a number. I, and I, and I, I, I agreed to that number. He goes, well, I'm down the line with some other people. I said, they lost. You'll have the money day after tomorrow. We're done. And I bought the company. And so now I'm able to go direct to the movie theaters. And we had this output deal with Netflix. And so the first movie I bought was a shark movie. And I bought it off the Weinsteins. I studied box office mojo. I studied all the movies and all the numbers and all the release patterns and all the release dates. And I noticed as a comedian, because comedians have that muscle where we're very observational, I noticed a shark movie had never failed. And I said to my acquisition people, I said, go get me a shark movie. They said, well, there's one out there. I go, who has it? They go, the Weinsteins. I go, what's the story? They go, we offer Bob two million bucks. and." He Told us to get out of here. I go. Well, you know, Bob's my neighbor out in Malibu. He's like eight doors down. His house is eight doors down from me. I'll walk down to the beach and I'll go get the movie. So one weekend, I walk down to his house. I said, Bob, it's Byron Allen. I go, I want to buy that shark movie. He goes, Do you have any money? I said, Yeah. He goes, Well, come on up, sit down. So I sit down. And I go, Bob. And Bob says, What are you thinking? I said, I'll give you two million bucks. He goes, I already told you guys to get out of here with that. I go, All right, I'll give you two and a half. He goes, Oh no no no, I need something with a three in front of it. I said, okay, I'll give you $30. He goes, oh, okay, I, I forgot you're a comedian. He goes, I need more zeros. I said, Bob, if I gave you three million bucks, are we done? He goes, we're done. We're good. All right, three million bucks. I go, okay. So then Bob, you know, so next thing I know, I get a call from Bob like a week later. He goes, you know that movie you bought for me on the beach? I go, yeah. He goes, well, it's on. He goes, I, I have it on DVD right now and it's on trucks. 10,000 units are on trucks all over the country are going to start delivering these DVDs on Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. It's going to be on the DVD shelves on Tuesday. If you don't wire me the money today, it's gone. I go, Bob, like, are you kidding me? So it was like, literally, we made the cutoff by five minutes and we wired him the money. And we spent the rest of Friday afternoon calling all the trucks on highways all over America to turn around and not drop off one of those boxes. That's how we spent Friday afternoon. I bought that in July of 2016. It was called In the Deep. And I was losing, and I sat on it, sat on it for one year until June of 2017. Why'd you sit on it? Because I wanted it to be a summer movie and it was too mm. late to put it out huh? that summer. And I said, okay, I don't know if I can't, I'm not sure all those boxes didn't get recovered. So I changed the name to 47 Meters Down, put it out, uh, summers and I and I couldn't find anybody. To, I didn't have the P and A money, I didn't have the print and advertising money. It cost thirty million dollars to put it in the theaters, and I couldn't find anybody to put up the money. So I went to a buddy of mine and I said to him, a Wall Street guy, and I said, I bought this movie off the Weinstein's, and this is before the Weinstein company blew yeah. up. And I said, I bought this movie off the Weinstein's, a shark movie, and I said, uh, I want to, I want to spend thirty million dollars. I want to risk 30 million bucks to put it in the theaters. And I said, I need to tell you something. Hollywood is a casino. And you need to know that I'm going to put up 15 million and I want you to put up 15 million. My 15 million will sit next to your 15 million. And you need to know that we're probably going to lose all of our money. You need to know that we are probably never going to see this 30 million again, my 15 million, your 15 million. You need to know that I cannot guarantee you that we're gonna spend 30 million bucks and no one no one may not buy one ticket. We may not sell one movie ticket to go see this movie and you just have to be prepared to walk away from that 30 million bucks as if we flushed it down the toilet because Hollywood is a casino, but I am willing to put my 15 million next to your 15 million, but you have got to be prepared to lose it all. And he looked at me and he goes, Is that your sales pitch? <laughs> and I said, Yes, that is my sales pitch. And he looked at me and he said, That is the worst sales pitch I have ever heard in my life. And I'm in. And I, You're, I said, You're in? He goes, I'm in. He put up 15 million. I put up 15 million. And it ended up being the biggest independent movie of the year. And we did over 44 million at the box office, yeah. right? Now we're shooting the sequel and he said no one has ever been that awesome and you,
0: then also you sold the international rights or yeah
1: i started an international division the internationals we sold the international rights that pretty much paid for the cost of the movie so now i got a movie for free so pretty much whatever we do here minus advertising mm-hmm. we just put that in our bank account so and then we put out you know hostiles with uh you know christian bale and Roseman pike a western i love westerns and they, i noticed a western hadn't been out i feel my skill set my skill set is terrific for for this because As a comedian, you have to observe things. You have to notice what's not there. You know, it's like, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like uh, 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 Brandon Tartikoff said, watch television. Maybe it was Al Massini. Watch TV, figure out what's not there, and then put it there. It's the same thing with the movie industry. Go to the movies, figure out what's not there, and then put it there. We didn't have a shark movie. Shark movies never fail. We didn't have a western Everybody turned the Western down, uh, hostiles. They said, oh, Byron Allen, he's screwed up now. He's going to lose a bunch of money. And they said he'll do two, three million at the box office. And uh, just like they said, I I, I screwed up on 47 meters down. They go, look at this. He's tracking at a two rate because they have tracking. I was at a two. I said, I don't know. These guys don't know how to read numbers. They don't know how to read numbers because I sat in the first marketing meeting." In the first marketing meeting, there are four boxes. They're, you know they call it uh, they call it quadrants, right? there're four quads. men under 25, men over 25, women under 25, women over 25, right? And then they have total awareness. We, re- we had nothing, no one cared. I said in the first marketing meeting, I said, you spend this 30 million. you bet it all on women under 25. You chase all the teenage girls. I said, if you get the teenage girls to go, the teenage boys will follow. Get the girls. So we spent 30 million chasing the teenage girls. They never looked at the box that we had women under 25. They wrote in the trades, I was gonna do 2 million bucks opening weekend. And I go, how do they figure I'm gonna do 2 million bucks when I have an, I had like almost a 10. I, we had an eight. We had an eight on girls under 25, teenage girls. Opening weekend was $11 million, mm. and it held the theaters and kept going. And the same thing, I was like, what are you guys thinking about Westerns? They're like, oh, you blew it, but you'll do $3 bucks." We put that movie out. We ended up doing $30 bucks. Hostiles, and then nobody would put out Chappaquiddick um, because nobody wanted the, the negative feedback. You know, And that was huge. That was huge. Chappaquiddick was great. I mean, there were people who didn't want me to put it out. They they made it very clear that they, you know, and I just said, "Hey guys, I'm not going to. I, I love Ted Kennedy. I was an, I actually met him. I actually financially supported him in his campaign. I'm a fan. But I said, I'm not going to cover this story up. And uh, I said, this is Mary Jo Kopechne's story. I'm not going to silence her. I want I want the truth told. And I'm I'm not looking to do this in a you know to disparage anybody. I just want the truth." And uh, somebody came to me and, you know, some powerful people came to me and said, hey, you know, how about not putting this out? And I said, hey, before you walked in here, I was only going to put it in 1,500 theaters, but now I'm going to put it in 2,000 theaters. And every time you guys ask me not to put the movie out, I'm going to up it 500 screens. So if you keep asking me to not put the movie out before you know it, I'm going to have it in 4,000 theaters. So... They stop asking, and I put it in about twenty two thousand plus screens, and the movie did phenomenally well. So we made history there. We made history in having a company that's direct to the theaters, uh, having a company direct with the cable operators, the TV stations, and the advertisers. And it just kind of goes back to my little my little three little rules of business: don't let anybody come in between you and the customer, don't run out of money, and don't and don't break rules one and two. And that's really it. So it's been great. Now, you know, we're having fun. We're chasing companies. We're looking to try and buy companies um, that will, you know, grow our company as we move along. And I'm just having a blast. And I'm still a comedian. I'm still looking to make people laugh. My wife and I, we are raising our three children. We have a a 10-year-old little girl, uh, Chloe Ava. We have uh, an 8-year-old little girl, Olivia Rose. And uh, we have a 6-year-old little boy, Lucas Byron. And uh, we're having a blast with them and just hanging it out and uh, just having fun. That's my life.
0: Well, Byron, it's such a great story. And I still have 100 questions for a part <laughs> two. Seriously, <laughs> you do you do promise
1: a, to do a part two? We can do it. I promise to do a part two, a part three. You and I have a lot to hang out and talk All right. about. I mean, I, I mean I love anybody, anybody who's a Wall Street guy and a comedian, I feel like we're brothers from a different mother. You're you're my kind of guy. I love that. Wall Street and comedy, that's the perfect mix mix for me. Numbers and business and business models, you you understand it. Yeah. I don't know how much more I have to share. I, I no, told no. you my life story. There's a
0: lot, there's a lot more, believe me. That's what we're gonna find out in part two. Because there's I wanna know. The f- we've done the past I want to know the future now and we're gonna we're gonna discuss that plus, plus there's a lot more about comedy we have to talk about yeah there's so, a lot
1: more about comedy I could, we could do a whole thing on comedy right we, we really can I mean just just that whole story of Jay and Dave and how you know Dave Jimmy Walker had us all convinced we should be writers and not comedy not comedians and David bought it for a minute and, and then uh and, and Jay helped David get out of his contract with Jimmy so he could go pursue his dream. And so we funny. got David Letterman. There's so much to talk about. But I, I love hanging out with you. And I feel like I made a really good uh, friend. And you're terrific. And thank you for having me on.
0: Thanks so much, Byron. And and until we meet again, which I hope is soon, Steve will make sure it's soon. And uh, thanks very
1: much. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. Thank you.